Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. June 3rd, 2017, it was a Saturday. I woke up at 7 in the morning, and if I'm waking up at 7 in the morning on a Saturday, you already know something is wrong. But I woke up to use the bathroom, and my arm felt a little weird. Uh, I figured I had just sort of slept on it funny. So I got up, made it to the bathroom, and my arm started to get worse. And then my balance started to go as my my left leg began to go offline. During that first month, it was basically left side hemiparesis. So I lost the use of my left arm, hand, and leg. Left side of my face was drooping from the loss of muscle control. While eating, I would start biting my cheek a lot more and having to remember to sort of clear food debris out from around my teeth. I also had reduced sensation. Today, it seems, if anything, I may have a slightly flatter affect today than I used to respond less strongly with emotion than I may be used to. But yeah, that turned out to not have a lasting impact after I got out of the hospital. If you focus on the obstacles, if you focus on the things that are in your way, you're gonna hit those things. You're gonna teach your brain to hit those things. Instead, focus on the path around those obstacles. Focus on the path to your goal, to what it is you want to accomplish, because that's what it's gonna take to get there. This is Stroke Stories, and I'm Mark Goodyear. In America, 10% of stroke survivors will recover completely. 25% will recover with only minor health challenges, but about 40% will experience more serious impairments that require special help. For many survivors, stroke groups are essential, but in areas where survivors might be more isolated, the nearest stroke group could be several hours away and difficult to get to. So we started Stroke Stories, the podcast, to seek out and to hear from stroke survivors. In this episode, we'll hear from Bill Monroe from Seattle, who suffered a stroke at the age of 46. About nine months before my stroke, I had been laid off from my job. So I was job hunting at that point. I live in Seattle, probably drank way too much coffee, as you do when you're living in Seattle, and was just very focused on trying to figure out what my next step was going to be. What was I going to do to be able to make sure I could make rent and uh, stretch out the savings as, as long as I could as I looked for my next job and tried to figure out how to make the next 
phase of my career happen. And that was really the focus of what I was doing. And the, the focus of my life was just, was just getting through that. Three months before my stroke, I had made one of the best financial decisions in my entire life, which is one of those things that is probably completely alien to your UK listeners. And that's that I paid my COBRA costs out of pocket. Normally in the US, our health insurance is provided by our employer. And after I was laid off, they paid for my health insurance for only six months. I was able to stay on that health plan by spending about $1,000 a month myself out of pocket in order to maintain that health insurance. And when the stroke would go on to happen, it would cost in excess of $200,000. So spending that myself was was probably one of the best financial decisions I ever made, unfortunately. It was definitely stressful. I was certainly living with that stress. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, I've been in the high-tech consumer electronics industry for 20 years. So I was always expecting to be laid off and to lose my job. And that was the first time it had happened. But fortunately, I had planned for it and built up some savings and to, to just try and manage that if it happened. But once it does happen, it, it's very different in knowing you're okay this month, but am I going to be okay next month? And are things going to be different six months or 12 months from now? So there's that low-level stress that's always running in, was always running in the back of my mind. June 3rd, 2017, it was a Saturday. I woke up at seven in the morning. And if I'm waking up at seven in the morning on a Saturday, you already know something is wrong. But I woke up to use the bathroom and my arm felt a little weird. Uh, I figured I had just sort of slept on it funny. So I got up, made it to the bathroom and my arm started to get worse. And then my balance started to go as my, my left leg began to go offline. Made it back to the bedroom as it was getting harder and harder to walk. I woke up my girlfriend and I told her, I, I think I need an ambulance. She recognized that you know I had the facial droop, I had the arm, I had the leg. We sort of both realized that this might be a stroke, which made no sense at that time at age 46. The ambulance showed up in a, a few minutes later and they whisked me straight to the hospital in my neighborhood that was a comprehensive stroke center. And I lived in that building for the next month. As soon as we rolled into the ambulance bay, they took me out, paused briefly to put the ID bracelet on my wrist, stick in an IV, and then it was straight into the CT scan. Uh, and then the rest of that morning would be followed by an MRI, by an ultrasound of my heart, and by all sorts of other tests and assessments. It was a clot. It was a uh, thrombus in the right middle cerebral artery that basically killed off a big chunk of my basal ganglia. 
uh, so I would go on to say I broke my basal ganglia. The aftereffects of Bill's stroke were mainly physical. During that first month, it was basically left side hemiparesis. So I lost the use of my left arm, hand, and leg. Left side of my face was drooping from the loss of muscle control. While eating, I would start biting my cheek a lot more and having to remember to sort of clear food debris out from around my teeth. I also had reduced sensation. So the way I described it was that if somebody touched my right hand with a pen, it would feel like they had touched like a left marker on my left hand. And as a result of that stuff happening, I ended up with uh, some shoulder subluxation and really had to learn how to walk again and how to take care of myself, how to to shower and to try and, you know, get used to this new life of living with this and had to get used to the emotional ability that would go along with that, where for no apparent reason or just exerting the slightest bit of effort, I would just start crying. And it was really interesting because that crying was completely devoid of any emotion. So it wasn't that I felt sad or depressed, but I was just having this physical reaction to the slightest stress. I didn't feel that much fear or I didn't sort of feel down in the same way. It was just a much more flat affect that it seemed I was living with. And maybe that's because, you know, my stroke was in my right brain. So my left, more logic-oriented brain was sort of even in a stronger place in the driver's seat. Or I, I just wasn't aware of, of my feelings. I know it was, the whole thing was a lot harder on my girlfriend, it seemed. She was dealing with all of this stress and trying to figure out what this means and worried about me. And I mean, I really had the easy job there, lie in bed in the hospital and go to my therapy appointments and and do my work. And so I guess it was just very much a, a live in the moment type of thing. I was in no rush to get out of the hospital. If I was gonna keep making some progress and getting better, I was okay with staying there until it made sense to go. The emotional ability seemed to go away after a few weeks. Now, what I f- that may be because at the time of my stroke, this was shortly after the FLAME study had come out, which was a study that showed that fluoxetine or Prozac could be given to a stroke survivor to improve motor recovery. And that is, it's an SSRI inhibitor, it's an antidepressant. So they put me on a different one, on Lexapro, to sort of aid in motor recovery. And I'm guessing that had the side effect of helping with the emotional lability. Today, it seems, if anything, I may have a slightly flatter affect today than I used to respond 
less strongly with emotion than I may be used to. But yeah, that turned out to not have a lasting impact after I got out of the hospital. Despite his stroke, he's been busier than ever. Since the stroke, I did a number of freelance projects and pursued more of that with some some of the major tech companies. I had another company that flew me to India to film training videos for a week. And just within the past month and a half, I've gone back to a full-time job as a trainer at Microsoft. I'm now working with journalists to help them use Microsoft Office products more effectively. I have so many, had so many other projects going on already within you know, six to nine months after the stroke, I was busier than I had ever been doing things. So I was worried about, am I going to have the time to do this stuff? Am I going to be just overwhelmed? Is the neurofatigue I sometimes live with going to just make all this impossible? But what I found was that going to work full time seemed to free up more time in my schedule. And I think that's because Throughout the whole thing, just not knowing if you're going to be able to pay the rent or buy food puts just such a huge mental burden on my energy level so that even if I am working the 40 hours a week, it's freeing up so much more brain cycles to be able to still accomplish other things and to make other things work. And the company has been, you know, fantastic about accommodating my uh, various appointments and whatnot as well. So they've been really supportive on that. But just sort of knowing that those basics of food, shelter, and clothing, I've got that covered, has just made everything else just so much easier. It's really sort of reduced the mental tax that I've been living with. Bill's recovery is also down to the fast response of his girlfriend, Kathy. In the moment, she stepped right up with what she needed to do, of getting the ambulance there, getting all that stuff taken care of, getting the stuff I I needed to do. But she spent most nights in the hospital uh, with me. They wheeled in a bed so she could sleep there too. But that's the thing about stroke, is it's not just my life that's turned upside down. It's our caregivers' lives that are turned upside down. I just had to focus on not dying and focus on my recovery. She has to be worried about me, and she was worried about me and what's going to happen. At the same time, I was always responsible for the logistics of our life together. So handling the bills, handling uh, paperwork, handling all of that, And suddenly she's now thrust into that world and has to start dealing with that at one of the most stressful times in her life because she's got to be worried about me and figuring out what does this mean for us. Uh, She was in more of a position to worry about the future and think about the future in a way that I simply wasn't at that point. And she had to watch me go through this. And that was uh, a huge, huge stressor for her. And, you know, whenever I get the slightest headache now, you know, you can just see it all 
come rushing back to her. Bill has made a great recovery. He's back working and now positive about the future. Still to come on Stroke Stories, Bill tells us about becoming the leader of his local stroke group. And after I'd been going there for about six months, the longtime leader uh, of that group, he'd been running it for more than 13 years, uh, he decided to transition and, and asked me to take over the group. So now I, I do that once a month, is go out there and help facilitate this meeting and bring in other guest speakers. I've got some great volunteers working with me, other folks in the group who help out with coordinating, with arranging for speaker details, and and just really giving folks of all kinds of strokes and all kinds of disabilities, from uh, no obvious disabilities to full-on wheelchairs and, and oxygen and just all sorts of things. And it's just so amazing that people come out to see one another. And how Bill feels about himself. Bill is still Bill, but I've leveled up. I understand more of what's happening in my brain. It's a different life, but it's still a great life. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's hear, though, how the stroke continues to have an impact on Bill's life. It's very much not in my past. Just from a continued direct impact, I still don't have practical use of my left hand. And I still walk with a cane more slowly than I used to. And it still takes a lot more energy to do that sort of stuff. At the same time, uh, I've certainly been able to live with that stuff in a lot of ways. Uh, I type 30 words per minute with one hand now. I have to adjust the way I move my luggage and carry things and the way I pack things. I've had to get used to only having access to two pockets on my jeans instead of all four because I can't use the pockets on the left side because I can't put my hand there. I still have the adaptive gear on the car, a, a spinner on the steering wheel and a turn signal extension so I can drive. And 
So I'm definitely still doing that. At the same time, I've gotten pretty good at the one-handed life. Starting zippers is still a challenge, and there's a lot of things that take a little more work, but I, I've been able to work around that. In some ways, I've become a three-year-old. Everything eventually ends up in my mouth, and using using that sort of as, as another hand. And at the same time, I've also been very focused on the community between the uh, StrokeCast podcast, between my work with the American Heart Association. I also lead one of the largest stroke support groups here in the Seattle area. So while I know a lot of folks do sort of put the experience behind them, this experience is still very much a part of my everyday life in that figuring out how can I help folks? How can I make this experience better? How can I learn more about my brain and understand the things that are a part of that? How can I apply the lessons that I have learned through my stroke to the rest of my life and to share those lessons with others? And I've gotten to meet some absolutely amazing people through this process. Bill noticed there weren't many podcasts aimed at stroke survivors, so he set up his own, called StrokeCast. I was already a podcaster when I had the stroke. I started my first podcast called Two Minute Talk Tips about public speaking shortly after my layoff. So if somebody asked me in an interview, what have you been doing since you you left your job? I could say something other than, oh, I've been binge watching Netflix. And so then I had the stroke. And so I was been a podcast listener for years and years and I started looking for stroke related podcasts while I was in the hospital and at that point I found only two the enable me show out of Australia and the slow road to better out of Vienna Virginia and so after I got out of the hospital I was like I guess I should just go start my own so on the stroke cast it's uh, you know, I describe it as a Generation X stroke survivor, explores rehab, recovery, the frontiers of neuroscience, and one-handed banana peeling to try and offer practical information, hacks for getting through life, information about developments in recovery and rehab, avoiding some of the, the snake oil and ripoff stuff that's out there, and really to just try and try and share more stories and help break down some of those barriers between the survivor community, the PT community, the neurologist community, where all these people do amazing work and they mean well, but they're so focused on their stuff, they don't see across the specialties nearly as much. And if I can help break those barriers down and help survivors ask more of the right questions and help some you know, therapists and doctors and nurses see some different aspects that they might not otherwise do, then then that's exactly what I want to do. I've been participating in a lot of the local stroke support groups pretty much from the beginning to, again, just learn more because you don't see any stroke really in the media unless somebody famous is dying. And so many survivors struggle with isolation and depression that it's just so important to get out there. So I started attending more of the support groups and with the Young Adult Stroke Survivors group here in Seattle, I, I began going and there's 
you know, anywhere from 20 to 40 survivors that meet once a month. And there's a separate breakout group at that meeting for caregivers. So they get a chance to go ahead and, uh, you know, complain about us, which I'm sure is what, what they, what they should do. But I'm actually, I'm sure I know they just need their own support and their own network because it's so stressful on them. And after I'd been going there for about six months, the longtime leader uh, of that group, he'd been running it for more than 13 years, uh, he decided to transition and, and asked me to take over the group. So now I, I do that once a month is go out there and help facilitate this meeting and bring in other guest speakers. I've got some great volunteers working with me, other folks in the group who help out with coordinating, with arranging for speaker details, and and just really giving folks of all kinds of strokes and all kinds of disabilities from uh, no obvious disabilities to full-on wheelchairs and, and oxygen and just all sorts of things. And it's just so amazing that people come out to see one another and to listen and to just be there as part of the community to to share their stories, to hear others' stories, and to just let folks know that it's okay. One of the most powerful things is that when we have somebody new come to the meeting, that moment when you, you get to say to them or they realize on their own that they're in a room of people who get it, you know, we just get it. We've been there. And they don't have to be embarrassed about word-finding challenges if they're living with aphasia or about walking more slowly or uh, or, or whatever it is, having some, uh, you know, forgetting the name of the person they've just been introduced to because of the short-term memory challenges. Whatever it is, whatever those deficits are, they're in a room of people who get it and who are there to listen and to share that experience. Bill is still Bill, but I've leveled up. I understand more of what's happening in my brain. It's a different life, but it's still a great life. It's the experience has unlocked some other things and ways that I can focus myself in some some ways that I hadn't before. And I, I describe myself as lucky with how things turned out because it could have gotten so much worse. I mean, I was never an athlete to begin with. And and so now what I can say is that if somebody wanted to hire me to be on their company softball team, I probably wouldn't be that much worse on the team after the stroke than before, uh, just because I never really had those skills. Had I lost my ability to speak, had I acquired some of the cognitive challenges, things would have been a lot harder for me. And that's one of the things that I find really interesting is that as I talk with survivors, so many of the survivors I talk to say they feel lucky because it could have gotten gone so much worse or everything went just the way that it did. Some folks I talk to can't imagine living with the physical challenges that I do. And I can't imagine living with the challenges that they do. But 
that whole thing of being able to level up or to, to mix another sort of geeky analogy. In some ways, I think I can start to see the matrix code of my own brain of how things work and come together and the role of neuroplasticity and the role of different parts of the brain and the idea that, you know, and how multitasking plays into this and just how all of this starts to work. I'm seeing behind the curtain, I'm seeing the code that runs my own head and that's helped me understand things in a way that maybe I could have before, but I never had to before. I never had to go ahead and take that step back and look at the, these things and, and, and figure it out in the way that I've had to go piece this stuff together and, you know, learn how to walk and learn how to use the arm and understand the symphony or orchestra of the muscles that are involved. And finally, advice from Bill on how to cope with disability after a stroke. To a loved one or a carer or anyone who's just encountering somebody with disabilities that are out there, offer to help when you can. And when the survivor declines the help, generally believe them. You know, and, and that applies to people with all sorts of disabilities people that you don't know, people that you're close to, you can offer to help. But if they say no, thank you, believe them. They either have a system for getting it done or they're struggling to get it done. And that struggle is part of the therapy. For survivors, what I say, you know, about 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I took a class one weekend in how to ride a motorcycle. Never ridden a motorcycle since then. But one of the things they taught us was that if you see an obstacle in the street, like a pothole or a, a piece of debris or a pedestrian that darts out in traffic, don't look at it. Don't look at them because your brain will drag you to whatever you are looking at. Instead, focus on the path around that obstacle. Look at where you want to go and go there. And that's the way it is with recovery. If you focus on the obstacles, if you focus on the things that are in your way, you're going to hit those things. You're going to teach your brain to hit those things. Instead, focus on the path around those obstacles. Focus on the path to your goal, to what it is you want to accomplish, because that's what it's going to take to get there. Bill hasn't stopped since his stroke. He's now running a local community group, working full-time, and producing a podcast. Coming up in the next episode of Stroke Stories. Less than a year later, I had a sixth stroke. My left arm went again, and that was, it was with the sixth stroke that I went from a quarter hemanopia to a full half hemanopia. So I've got no left-sided vision. Then I had surgery to stop the strokes. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use so that each episode will be automatically downloaded. And we'd be grateful if you'd rate and comment on each episode because that'll help us spread the word. If you'd like to learn more about stroke, please search online for The Stroke Association. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. 
Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 